Hi there. I'm Brian, and this is another episode of What Should I Do With My Life. This episode features Robert Yang, who is currently a software engineer at Dropbox, and also happens to live in the same house as I do. In this episode, we discuss his current job and past internship at Dropbox, as well as his experiences as a quant at the hedge fund D.E. Shaw, and his research at Columbia. Hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the podcast. Do you want to start off by giving a quick introduction about yourself? Hi, my name is Robert. I'm a current software engineer at Dropbox. I graduated from Columbia with my bachelor's and master's in computer science in 2016. Um, and before that, I spent some time doing internships in quant finance and software and in electrical engineering. Awesome. So I guess to start off with, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do at Dropbox now? I'm um, sure. So, as I said, I'm a software engineer, so I'm on the growth platform team at Dropbox. We're the team that handles most of the messaging that somehow comes your way if you're a Dropbox customer. Uh, so if we get an email or a notification or some in-app upsell, at some point or another, we probably touch that system. And how big is that team that works on that part of the Dropbox? The team is about 10 people right now, um, made up of six engineers and some number of PMs and a manager. Cool. And how did you get put onto this team? Is there sort of a selection process that people at Dropbox go through as new grad engineers, or how does it work? So for new grad engineers at Dropbox, it's mostly kind of a preferencing process where you say what kind of things you care about, and then you have this ongoing conversation with both potential managers and potential teammates, as well as um, your recruiter and other people involved in the process to try and find the best fit. For me, I wanted to be on a team that had a lot of impact, and it turns out that a reasonably large fraction of Dropbox customers um, decide to buy Dropbox or are prompted to buy Dropbox because they received some kind of communication from Dropbox, um, which makes sense on the face level. And so it turns out to be a fairly high impact team. Very cool. Uh, so I guess to jump in a bit about your day-to-day, so what, what does your, your current, you know, workday look like and when do you get into work and then when do you leave work and what are the things you do in between? Mm -hmm. So it definitely depends on which day of the week it is. Um, For most days of the week I get in sometime before 10 and I leave sometime after 7. Getting in before 10 is due to the fact that I don't wake up that early Um, and so not earlier. Leaving after 7 is because we have good food and dinner's at 7. Yeah, I've heard a lot about the Dropbox food. So how would you describe it, and is it really as good as a lot of people say it is? Uh, obviously, I'm a little bit biased. I think Dropbox food is great. The best way to describe it probably is what you would get if you hired people who are normally trained for, uh, say, like high-class restaurants and have them work in a corporate cafeteria. So instead of having lots of options, we tend to have a few really nicely plated and nicely designed options. Um, a tuck shop makes a strong effort not to repeat dishes, so there's always something new to try, um, even if the base ingredients are pretty similar, and you can always find something you want to eat. And there's a few holdovers from the days where uh, we just wanted to have quirky things, so one of the uh, odd aspects that we have is every lunchtime we always have coconuts, um, <laughs> because if you want coconut water, apparently it's better to get a coconut. Or a real coconut, huh? So how, do you, how would you say it compares to a company like Google or Facebook? Compared to Google or Facebook, in the early days of Google or Facebook, it's probably of similar quality. Our head chef had previously worked at 
uh, Apple and Facebook before. But as a company grows, it becomes a lot harder to maintain that quality because you have to feed your 30,000 employees or so on and so forth. Whereas Dropbox um, in the SF office only has less than 2,000 and probably on the order of 1,000 people. So it's a lot easier to feed everybody and it's a lot easier to put extra time into the food. Hmm. I see. Cool. Uh, cool. So let's go back to place uh, your day-to-day. How much time do you actually spend writing code? That is a good question. It really depends on where I am in my project and um, how much of the code is actually necessary. So being that we're what we call a product infrastructure team, we have product teams on one side who uh, want to do things like we want users to be notified when X happens. We're also an infrastructure team in the sense that we actually maintain infrastructure that targets users and says you should get these emails and so on. And so oftentimes, a lot of my work is figuring out what exactly needs to be built that satisfies all the requirements and doesn't require us to rebuild it in a month or six months or some other short timeline. Um, So in a given week, I probably spend two engineer days actually writing code. And when you say engineer days, do you mean eight hours or what does that refer to usually? Um, I would say the best way to refer to it is like 40% of the time of the week. Um, so two out of the five engineer days. I don't know how many hours that actually works out to be uh, because it tends to be scattered between other things and time tracking isn't perfect. Um, and then the remainder of my time is often spent either in meetings, figuring out product, product specs and figuring out what to build or um, working with infrastructure teams to make things more reliable. Um, and then. Uh, fairly decent chunk of my time each week right now is spent doing recruiting and interviewing because right now it's university recruiting and we have a lot of candidates coming through and so it's nice to help out. Is it weird to be interviewing candidates so soon out of college uh, since you are freshly graduated and these people are presumably coming in for either new grad positions or internships? I don't feel like it's weird. I think it actually tends to be very helpful because you know what kinds of things new grad engineers would be very good at and also what kinds of things you might get better signal from because, for example, the classic interview question at many tech companies is very heavily algorithms or data structures based. And for someone just out of school, these are usually fairly easy because you just studied them. Um, However, uh, at Dropbox, we like to ask more, I guess, industry-focused questions. And so... We'll have things like multi-threading or concurrency or actual real distributed systems problems that we might encounter in, in the field. And so it's nice to know how to explain these and translate between like what a new grad engineer might do and how they perform to how they might perform with a couple of years of experience. So from your experience, are there any common mistakes that new grad or intern candidates make? Or how would you, um, you know, suggest that they go about preparing for So the first thing, and we tell this to everyone who we bring on site, is that it really helps to actually have some kind of concurrency experience because in reality, most work we do is highly concurrent. There's a lot of distributed systems, there's a lot of computers involved at any given time. And of course, Dropbox, the product, is a massive distributed file system. And so necessarily, we do a lot of that kind of work and we ask those kinds of questions. And many new grad engineers or new grads in general don't really think about these kinds of aspects of computer science because you don't have to. They're not often recording classes and it's a lot of complexity for relatively little gain if you only have one computer. 
Um, in terms of the kinds of things that new grads often make mistakes on or, new, or interns often make mistakes on, it's kind of coming into the whole interview process with the belief that there is a right answer. Is there maybe more than one right answer? And also that the right answer is something that you can learn from a textbook. So there have been many candidates I've interviewed who've kind of come in with like, oh, I should solve this using insert data structure that I just learned in algorithms here, or insert algorithm that I just learned here. And our problems are designed so that there isn't usually an obvious solution like that. And it's a fairly negative signal if a candidate can't break out of the mindset of there's like this formulaic answer that the interviewer is looking for and move into kind of being more creative about the problem and trying to apply things they've learned in more practical ways. So with respect to the concurrency um, aspect, did you, how did you learn about that sort of thing? Did you take a class or did you just learn about in your free time? How did you prepare for your interview? So in some senses I cheated in that my background was originally electrical engineering and very low level hardware stuff. And so um, in attempts to build various things in high school, I had reinvented some of concurrency because you have to. Um, if you want more than one thing to happen, you have to build your own schedule or you have to um, kind of learn how different processes might talk to each other. And then my first internship um, in college was at Amazon on a distributed systems team. And so necessarily, I learned a lot of the higher level constructs there. And so I don't think that this is a particularly common path for learning concurrency, but I happen to have a fairly decent background in it before. Um, and most of my research work also was in robotics, which is a real-time system and so highly concurrent. Hmm. So for people who don't have that same background, I know for me, I learned a lot about concurrency after taking uh, operating systems, which I took my third year of school. And I, I presume there are people applying to Dropbox that are not yet in their third year of school taking operating systems. Do you have any advice for them? I mean, one of the kind of cliche answers is just to take operating systems um, because there's no real requirement that you take it at a certain point in time. And in fact, most systems classes will kind of touch on the concurrency ideas. But also the constructs that you use in concurrency aren't necessarily that hard to understand. It's more just familiarity. So you can get a long way just by trying to build something that is concurrent, by trying to um, build something that doesn't just have this like asymptotic performance, but also has... Um, this question of how do we make it work on multiple machines. And if you do that, you're pretty well prepared for engineering and therefore also our problems. Interesting. Cool. So I guess let's move on to the other aspects of engineering. So besides writing code, you mentioned you go to a lot of meetings and you do a lot of interviews. Um, and I imagine you also spend a lot of time doing code reviews and that sort of thing. What's it like doing code reviews as a new grad when I imagine you're also inter or reviewing other people's code who might be much more experienced. Mm -hmm. So code reviews are kind of an interesting concept because the entire idea of a code review is that you don't necessarily need the world's best engineer to do your code review. You want someone who doesn't have the same context you do to look at your code. And first we'll answer, does it do what I think it does? Secondly, should I even be doing that thing? Thirdly, can I maintain this code if I was, was to randomly find it in the code base? And we note that bug finding is not part of a code review. The expectation is that you're not trying to send other people buggy code and be like, find all the bugs. The expectation is not, um, like I haven't run the formatter on the code yet, and so you're gonna have to knit on all the cell bugs. We have a linter for that, and we can catch a lot of those errors early on. 
And so in that respect, most of the purpose of code review can be accomplished by anyone with context on the code. And so for that reason, I haven't found it awkward to review other people's code because there are areas of our code base that I'm very familiar with and design concepts that I understand fairly well. Um, I've built part of our data model. And using those bits of knowledge, it's pretty easy to see like, okay, maybe we should refactor this piece of code so that it would better work with this other system that we have. Or we know our six month timeline, so maybe we should build it in such a way that we don't have to rebuild it when we build the next product. Interesting. So what distinguishes the best engineers at Dropbox from say the newest engineers or the most junior engineers? I'm not sure that's an easy question to answer. Part of it is because I haven't necessarily been at Dropbox long enough and I'm certainly not one of the best engineers now. And I'm, if anything, closest to the junior engineers because there haven't been that many people that have started out after me, if nothing else. Um, what would your guess be from your limited experience? The classic new, new engineer is the person who is given a task on your favorite task management system. And then they know they're given via the task, like roughly how to fix it, like what the plan to fix is. Maybe it's um, something it doesn't show up right. Maybe it's something that like in some odd confluence of circumstances happens to do something unexpected. And then you write, you spend most of your time reading the code. You read a thousand lines of code, you write 10 lines of code, you um, commit it, it gets reviewed, it lands in the code base. And there's a lot of this kind of work. And so this is very valuable to the company. I would say that the next level beyond that is being able to proactively find like this is a system that is likely to cause issues or this is a system that could be better designed. How might I design it better? And then work with the team to make sure it actually happens that way. Um, and then skip a couple levels and you have the kind of people who have visibility across entire infrastructural systems. Like for example, there are engineers like Dropbox who kind of thought, okay, this paying for Am paying Amazon for service for service and for storage is kind of expensive. How do we save money on that? And so over the course of a couple of years, they designed everything from the file system, the uh, block storage to the underlying distributed system and kind of put that all together into what we now call Magic Pocket, um, which has been reported on a little bit, but is effectively one of the cheapest ways to store highly redundant data in anywhere. Very cool. I also, um, have heard that the creator of Python works at Dropbox. Um, have you run into him? Yeah, uh, Guido is actually pretty easy to find because he um, comes in at about the same time I do, so I sometimes <laughs> see him in the elevator. Um, and then he's also very active evangelizing static typing in Python. So one of the major projects that he has input on, among the many things he does, is MyPy, which is effectively a partial typing system for Python. And this lets us take advantage of how easy it is to write more Python code, and we have a lot of expertise in Python, not the least of which is provided by Guido, but also allows us to avoid bugs. Um, so when we have explicit typing in Python, it's a little bit easier to figure out what's going on, whereas before you might have to understand the piece of code that your piece of code's uh, parent is calling in order to understand the type of a particular object. Cool, that's awesome. So going along those lines, do you think there's anything specific that distinguishes engineering at Dropbox versus engineering at any other company? Again, from the experience point of view, I haven't been at that many companies, so it's hard to say what exactly is different. I think one of the key things that makes Dropbox interesting to work at for me is that it's one of those places where 
everyone is willing to work on projects and everyone has this baseline level of skill such that you don't have to worry about something happening. So for example, at many companies, there are people who like are really good at say backend work and some other people are really good at frontend work and then they kind of silo themselves and become local experts in this particular field. At Dropbox, through some kind of black magic, we've maintained a sufficiently high, high hiring bar that I'm confident that anyone on my team can solve any problem for my team. That sounds pretty good. Cool. Uh, so now let's jump a little to your other experiences. I guess we could start first with um, your internship at Dropbox. What was that experience like? And how important was that to convincing you to come back full time? So I interned at Dropbox in the summer of 2014. So this is just after my sophomore year in college. Um, and I think it was one of the big reasons why I came back to Dropbox. Um, a lot of it is that I met a lot of really interesting people who taught me everything from how to be a real software engineer to like how to get around San Francisco and what kinds of things people do when they're at work and not at work. And in general, this is such a good experience that I'm still good friends with almost all of my intern class from 2014. And most of the people who were able to from the intern class went back to Dropbox. Um, and if anything, it's probably the best internship I've ever been in. Um, so at the time, it was anywhere between 10 and 14 weeks long, depending on what your summer schedule looked like. And you essentially got an intern mentor and an intern project. And then your project could be anything that could be feasibly completed within that time period. So in the past, interns have gotten things from like implementing Dropbox Infinite for Linux, which is a pretty recent one, um, which involves working with the Linux kernel and a lot of very low-level file systems work, to uh, working on image compression, to building key parts of Composer, which became Dropbox Paper, and so on and so forth. So they're very high-impact projects, and there's this expectation that an intern who starts at Dropbox, by the end of their internship, should be about as productive as a new grad engineer. Mm, awesome. And I know some people, when I talk to them about Dropbox, they express some concerns about the future. I know recently in the press, maybe, I forget how long ago, but there was news about Dropbox getting marked down by Fidelity or something like that. Uh, do you think that's accurate, or how do you think about the future of Dropbox? So, we internally have a lot of numbers that can't be disclosed, but suffice to say we think we're doing pretty well. I think that a lot of the reason why the market tends recently to have marked Dropbox down or the public opinion has marked Dropbox down is because uh, Box, which is a somewhat smaller competitor, has recently gone public and they haven't been able to make a profit and they haven't been able to be consistently cash flow positive and so on and so forth. Um, these are not problems that Dropbox has had and so we're fairly certain that our financial circumstances are better than Box's. Um, but nonetheless, an external observer who sees Box and doesn't have access to Dropbox's internal numbers can only assume that Dropbox and Box perform fairly similarly. Um, this isn't true, but of course, it's very hard to convince people without being able to disclose the numbers. Yeah, so when, when they were trying to convince you to join full-time, do they convince you with numbers, or how does that process work? It depends on whether you were an intern in the past or, or not. So having been an intern in the past, I actually had access as an intern to most of the numbers that mattered uh, because we just talked about them in the company and we talked about them in all hands meetings and so on. And so I wasn't learning any additional extra information that I wouldn't have had access to in the process of my, um, my cell, I guess. Uh, 
However, this isn't true for new grads uh, or other new hires who are not coming in from a, a position of trust. Um, so I'm actually less aware of what exactly happens there. I do know that we don't disclose all the numbers. I think that in various cases we've had senior staff members in the company who are authorized to disclose numbers um, get on cell calls and say whatever they need to say. Um, obviously not having been on such a cell call, <laughs> they wouldn't know what they actually talked about. <laughs> cool. Awesome. So. Uh, now let's go to another one of your internship experiences. Um, so you interned at DE Shaw last summer, right? Um, and uh, I think it'd be really interesting for you to talk about, you know, what is it that you know you did at DE Shaw? I think not so many people are exposed to that sort of work um, for whatever reason. Uh, so I guess do you want to talk a little bit about um, like what you did last summer and what in general the role of a quant is? at these firms? For sure. So Shaw is kind of an interesting uh, firm because historically it was a research lab run by David Shaw and then at some point or another he decided that I want to do this finance thing and then sometime later started a hedge fund around it. And so it's one of the earliest computational and quantitative hedge funds. Um, culturally it's mostly scientists of some sort, um, whether mathematicians or physicists or computer scientists by training. Um, and it tends to have a very academic mindset. So I first found out about D.E. Shaw kind of in the periphery of math competitions and other things that my friends were going to because D.E. Shaw would sponsor all of them, and that was kind of cool. And then when I was at Dropbox, I met a couple of people who had previously been at D.E. Shaw and said, like, this is actually a good experience, you should go and try it out. Um, so then I interviewed, and um, one of the philosophies of most quantitative firms is it's easier to teach people finance than this to teach people how to be smart, so, so-called. And so as long as, as long as you are willing to go through the interview process and you have a sufficient math background um, and some computational background, it's generally not required at all that you know anything about finance, which was good for me because I didn't know anything about finance. Yeah, so what do they, what do, they do on a daily basis? Um, so over the summer, most of the time that I had was spent doing some kind of quantitative research. Um, so Shaw has, of course, a very large framework for building analyses, um, including ingesting data from the market and processing it um, with very efficient systems to being able to graph things and like every machine learning algorithm that you've thought about using is probably implemented at some point, in some cases in more than one way, depending on how you want to treat error and risk and so on. Um, And so a lot of time is spent in something like an IPython terminal or an R terminal just trying to figure out whether your hypothesis about the market is actually true. And coming up with hypotheses is kind of this infinite process. Like there's always more thoughts you have. Uh, The real question is whether, first of all, they are real, like whether that's the truth. And secondly, whether or not it's likely to make any money after you account for trading costs. Because trading costs is a fairly significant factor in the market. Can you give an example of a hypothesis that someone might come up with? So one kind of silly hypothesis that I guess it's been talked about at various points, um, and it's not one that, as far as I know, D. Uh, Shaw trades on, <laughs> is this idea of the stock market somehow being affected by the weather in New York City. And so if you run this regression or you do some kind of quantitative analysis on it, you find that there is a statistically significant correlation between the weather in New York City and the performance in the stock market, so like the S&P, for example. Whether or not this has any causal factor is entirely up to your interpretation of the data. So one argument might say um, 
people are happier in the morning if the sun is out. And if they're happier, they're more willing to take risky trades. And so this might shift the market. Another argument might say um, when it's raining, people don't necessarily want to go to work. And so some fraction of people who are relatively lazy um, will not be trading as much on those days. They might get to work later, they might do other things. Um, there are companies whose uh, public press releases might change, like whether or not you release on a given day might change depending on the weather that day or the forecasted weather. And of course there's a seasonality effect, which is rain is more common in the winter than it is in the summer. So there's a lot of, um, I guess, confounding variables here. And a lot of the analysis would be trying to figure out which confounding variables matter, which ones don't, how to deal with the fact that you don't actually have that much data to trade on once you've, deal once you've controlled for all the confounding variables. And then after all of that, trying to convince somebody else that your analysis is actually correct because one person is not enough to make any trade. Hmm. Fascinating. You mentioned earlier that uh, it requires a lot of math background and computational background. Uh, what was your math background and computational background like? And what are you know, maybe other people at the firm's sort of backgrounds there? So there's two main areas of of mathematics that are helpful in quantitative finance. Uh, the first being differential equations, because most things in the stock market depend on other things, and differential equations is a study of things that depend on things, roughly speaking. Um, the second being statistics, um, in that no one person can be completely right, and so being probabilistically right is useful. Um, as it turned out, my research in robotics has had to deal with a lot of differential equations and, and probability. And it turns out that this is also true for many physicists. So there's many physicists who are now quants, and of course applied mathematicians because quantitative finance is an applied math. Um, whether it's necessary to have this background is a little unclear. Certainly, like the basics of probability, I think the average so-called technical person would know, and a certain subset of these people can learn anything they need to learn. And the types of models you use in in finance tend to be of the sort that like you don't use them anywhere else, so you probably have to learn them anyways. Um, for the purposes of interviewing for quant positions, oftentimes the real question is whether you have this intellectual curiosity for math. Um, so it's less about, say, whether or not you know how to compute some partial differential, and more about whether you even are interested in computing partial differentials, whether you have this passion for math that makes the company believe that you're willing to sit down with a textbook and learn everything you need to learn. So what are the interviews like? Do they just ask you math problems? Or do they ask you behavioral questions? What's that process like? So I can only speak to my own interview, and it may or may not be representative. Um, for mine, I had a sequence of interviews, a couple of which were uh, mostly math-based, so I guess like something like what is the probability of X happening. Um, some of them were conceptual, like how might you uh, choose between different financial strategies or investing strategies, what would you rank them on, what kinds of factors do you think matter? Um, and this was approached in an entirely mathematical way. Um, some of them are computational, so like how would you implement an algorithm that like trades on this strategy, or how would you implement this kind of thing that lets you like partially apply computation um, up until the point where you actually need to do it, which it turns out is very useful because a lot of computation you throw away in the process of doing investing. Um, and then towards the end, after after a lot of the technical questions had been asked, there were some behavioral background questions. So like, I had a lot of questions about my research in robotics and how I thought it might be interesting or might apply to things. Um, 
a lot of questions about um, what I thought the role of investing was and what I thought would be important in making a good investment, so-called. Um, and I think I've interviewed at a couple of quant finance places and those questions tend to be fairly similar, at least on the hedge fund side. I understand that they're somewhat different in the banking side where you tend to do more valuation models and less forecasting models. Interesting. So in the end, how did you decide to go to Dropbox instead of going back to DE Shaw? So for me, it was mostly a cultural thing. Um, part of it was I had decided that I didn't want to start working in New York immediately after graduation. Um, I like San Francisco better as a new professional environment. Um, and part of it was that in technology, you often work in larger teams, and a lot of what you're trying to do is build a system as a team. Um, whereas in quantitative finance, a lot of what you do is you're trying to build individual forecasts. And then you do spend time, of course, combining forecasts together and sharing ideas. But the work you do is often much more individual, and I felt that I would learn more and have a better experience in the short run um, doing software engineering. That said, I haven't closed the door on quantitative finance. I think it's a very interesting field, and I try to keep up to date with um, the kinds of things that people think about in the industry as much as they can. Cool. Do you think there are any misconceptions about quantitative finance? From sort of my past experience, I remember imagining it as being a place that's kind of brutal and very hardworking, people very are very cutthroat. Do you, it seems to me that, it, that I was kind of wrong in that case. Um, are there any common misconceptions that you think there are? I think there's often a conflation of quantitative finance with investment banking or sales and trading or the traditional finance roles. And due to the background of most people in quantitative finance, they tend to be very different. And so this conflation is not well deserved. Um, as I said, DE Shaw, for example, is mostly made up, um, or at least the company core is made up of ex-academics, which means that the kind of work you do tends to be very, uh, very open. You're given a lot of flexibility to work on things that you think are interesting. And the environment is not really designed such that like you have to like dress the right way or you have to show up to work and stay for ridiculously long hours. Like that's not really the point. The point is to do the best you can at figuring out how the world works. Um, so like as to your earlier point, like people thinking that quantitative finance is cutthroat or very competitive. Um, I don't think that's really true. At least not in the same sense that most people think it is. I think that's kind of a holdover from the rest of finance which you hear much more about. Quantitative finance, if anything, is the kind of world where people sit and think for a really long time, and after they've thought thoroughly about a problem, then they come up with an idea and they execute on it. Um, it's not really designed to be fast-paced. Even if the systems work very quickly, doing the analysis quickly is often unwise. You want to have very good due diligence because there have been many cases in the past, for, such as Knight Capital or such as um, long-term capital management, where short-sighted decisions or hasty analyses have led to significant losses and company collapses and so on. Hmm. Fascinating. So it sounds like Dishaw is very, very much a research sort of place, and I understand you did a lot of research um, in college. What kind of research did you do? Uh, and did you enjoy it, and did you ever consider you know, maybe pursuing research further? Right. So most of my research was focused in robotics. I did a number of different projects, um, mostly regarding manipulation for disabled patients. Um, so when I say manipulation for disabled patients, the idea is that 
there are many things that an average person might do or an able person might do that we call activities of daily living. And these include things like uh, opening a door or brushing their teeth or eating a cookie. And it's very difficult for many paraplegic patients, for example, to pursue these actions because they don't have that kind of dexterity anymore. They may not have control of their arms or their legs. They may be otherwise physically limited. But it turns out that robots are able to do many of these things. Maybe not perfectly, but even what we have now is potentially very useful for people in these conditions. And so my research started with building actual manipulators that um, paraplegic patients could use potentially to uh, do activities of daily living, and then moved on to how a, how a patient might control such a system. And so a lot of my research in the last two years focused on brain-computer interfaces, um, where the idea is that there's this classic uh, paraplegic patient manipulation device, which is uh, kind of like a, a straw, where you blow into the straw, where you like suck in from the straw, and this gets you roughly two bits of information uh, per some period of time. And a brain-computer interface, in theory, can be much better than this. Like we know that we think very quickly. We know that human... Um, reactions time is very quick um, relative to many other things. We think that we can get a lot more bandwidth out of a brain-computer interface than we can out of anything that is purely physical, because necessarily anything you can manipulate with a physical interaction is a subset of that which the brain already computed. Of course, we're nowhere near that. <laughs> so um, in particular, my research focused on this idea that we might be able to detect when a, a patient or someone wearing uh, a headset might be able to find something that they were looking for. Um, and there's a number of different ways to do this, um, and they have lots of fancy acronyms, but roughly speaking, the idea is that you have this subconscious response to, to this process of finding an object or finding something you're looking for with your eyes. Um, in a sense, uh, your, your retina processes on the order of thousands of megabytes per second of pure information um, measured in terms of light coming into your eyes and getting positive at some point, but we believe that your conscious mind only receives on the order of a couple hundred bits of information. Which means also that the underlying systems that do the image processing, that um, segment the world into interesting things and non-interesting things, are essentially subconscious processes, and we might be able to detect their responses. So we might be able to hook into and kind of like attach a debugger to the human brain and see what's going on. And so in our case, we were saying, okay, if we like tell the user to look for something and then use a generative model to figure out what they might be looking for, then we might be able to use this detection system to build a robot that someone can control without using any of their hands or eyes or any other physical movement just by looking at a screen. And it would, we would like to say that it reads their mind and figures out what they're thinking about. It doesn't really, but <laughs> with a generative model, it's close enough. That sounds pretty awesome. Um, so. Did you ever consider pursuing that as a career? So I, I guess the question here is whether or not I want to do a PhD. And generally the answer is I, I did seriously consider doing a PhD. It's um, very much in, in line with my interest in research and, and in advanced computer science and so on. Um, the main reason I didn't end up doing a PhD was because it seemed like the market was not a great place to start a PhD in the sense that most of the super interesting research or the big advances in machine learning um, were being done by industry. And there was kind of this flow of top professors 
from reputable institutions working with industry to have access to data and computational resources and so on. And so it seems like, okay, maybe maybe bef- while this is still settling out, I might want to go to industry first, get that experience, and then later on decide whether or not I want to do the PhD. So it's still an option for you. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I think we'll try to wrap up soon, but uh, I'd love to hear about, you know, in terms of your college experience, would you have done you know, anything differently? Would you have considered you know, doing different internships or doing different things with classes, studying something different, or do you think you did the right thing when you, with your path? So first of all, there's no right thing. Um, as an RA and as a college student, I think I can safely say there, was, there is no right path. In, in one sense, I don't have any regrets about the classes I took or about the internships I did or the people I met. I, I had a really good experience at Columbia. But on the other side, I think like it might have been more interesting to go through Columbia and focus on, on the social aspect, on how to meet and talk to a bunch of different people with radically different interests. Um, whereas, at least my first two years, I guess, took lots and lots of class and learned a lot of things, but maybe I could have learned those on my own. It's, a little unique uh, when you go to an institution like Columbia or like most institutions of higher education um, in that the people you meet are not all focused on one thing but they are all of roughly the same intellectual bent and are all roughly the same age and are all in the same place and so this means that like as a person in the professional world it's hard to meet someone whose interests are radically differ from your own. You tend to meet people who share at least one interest with you because that's how you met them. But at Columbia, the interest that you may share with them might just be that you are a student at Columbia. And so I got to meet people who were super interested in our history, who were super interested in philosophy, who were super interested in law, and so on. And I wish I could have leveraged that research more while I was there. Cool. And do you have any maybe advice uh, or tips for people that are you know, still in the process of trying to figure out uh, what they should do with their lives. Do you, was there anything that helped you a lot? I think the biggest thing is to believe that you can do whatever you want to do. And it's not about whether or not you can actually do it. Like the question of capability is kind of irrelevant and orthogonal to the process of how you should go about things. But a lot of people, they'll go to an interview for some career and then they will fail the interview because most people fail their first interview. And then they just say, okay, I clearly can't be a consultant. I clearly can't be a lawyer. I clearly can't be a software engineer. That's too hard. And the reality of the world is that when you graduate from school, you will suck at your job. Like most people suck at their jobs. This is why it's an entry level job. There's a reason why it takes many years of experience before you become a fully independent employee who can do whatever they want. And if you happen to be that kind of person early on, that's great, but most people are not like that. And because of that, it's not productive and it's not helpful to shut yourself down. Um, One way to think of it is, in any interview or in any test, it's the other person's job to say why you can't do it. You should never say that for yourself. Cool. And along those lines, do you have any sort of resources like books or blogs or websites, Twitter feeds that you enjoy reading or think are useful to anyone out there? 
Um, I don't think anything in particular. I think it's important to stay informed and to read things from across uh, various sources. We have this tendency in the 2010s, I guess, to live in a filter bubble where we only see things that we agree with. Um, this is particularly exacerbated by Facebook, which specifically only picks stuff mm -hmm. they, they think you'll like. Mm -hmm. um, but just searching around, reading old books, reading new books, um, searching the internet for things that you don't know, and trying your best to understand why other people might have the opinion they do is probably the most educational thing you can get away with. <laughs> Everything else is hard. <laughs> cool. Uh, and so with that, uh, as a closing statement, do you, is there anywhere people can contact you if they want to you know, learn more about anything that you've said here, ask you any questions, give an internet presence? Um, internet presence. My understanding is that if you Google search my name, Robert Ying, that you'll eventually find me, given that <laughs> I've been emailed by random people. Um, so I assume that works. If, if not, you can find me on Facebook or I think I have robertying.com, so my contact <laughs> info is probably on there somewhere. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me.